3CR, radio that's independent, progressive and making a difference. And a welcome to the Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, back in the beloved 3CR studios here in Fitzroy, Melbourne, Australia. So, uh, yeah, great to be back after a uh, an incredible trip through America that I look forward to telling you a bit about later on. But uh, my oh my, how else? What else can we talk about but uh, the Chinese explosion that's unraveling before our eyes? I just had to pinch myself doing the numbers, and yes, the. Uh, uh, Shanghai uh, Stock Exchange is down some 44% since the high in mid-June this year. So uh, it's unravelling at a rate of knots. And uh, I suppose we, we have been placing warnings on, uh, on the Chinese economy for a number of years on the show, talking about uh, just how dodgy their stats are. They seem to be able to produce them within one month. Uh, when, uh, you know, they've got a billion people and for the Americans with uh, uh, 300-odd million, they take three months. We take about three months to compile our GDP statistics as well. But the Chinese just seem to ram them out uh, uh, in predetermined numbers. So uh, a whole pile of uh, Chinese statistics are on notice and... For such a young uh, free market economy, we've been wondering if they can sustain the sort of growth they've been pushing. But uh, to see the sort of corrections we've seen where even yesterday when they announced a uh, 0.25% interest rate cut and then also a a big reserve ratio requirement uh, cut, basically their, their bank deposits they need to hold on hand was also cut quite significantly. But uh, still, the share market fell 7.6%. I think only 1.3% today, so not as bad. But uh, one of the points uh, I talked about in uh, a recent blog post on prosper.org.au called China's Economic Fundamentals Exposed, it was uh, that the price-to-earnings ratios in uh, China were at uh, abysmal lows. In Australia, it's something like uh, a 16 to 18, the ratio of share price to earnings, whereas in China, it's 21 times. Um, America, similar sort of 16 to 18 ratio as well. But uh, China, somehow this stock market has got ahead of itself. The government really promoted the sort of capitalist dream of people buying shares. And uh, there's been this runaway growth in credit. Steve Keen reminded us in his recent Forbes article that uh, when the GFC hit, Chinese private debt was very low, but debt to GDP has since grown by 80%. A hefty 35% jump in private debt to GDP occurred in one year in 2010, outgunning the worst of the Japanese excesses of 25% and made the US look responsible with its mere 15% growth. So uh, the the Chinese ghost cities phenomenon, uh, all our iron ore uh, has been uh, pummeled into building these empty apartment towers, uh, just shells of of real estate that are that are on sold again and again and again. And over the last few years, uh, the government there has increased. Uh, 
has tightened the, the, the noose on this sort of speculative spigot by ensuring that people who own a second home had to have a 50% deposit on that second home. We've seen for at least the last 18 months correcting real estate prices. It's interesting that uh, they were um, starting to turn around according to some of these statistics. But uh, for a long time, many people have uh, been raising questions about China. And one of the best is uh, Jim Chenos, a uh, shorter, short trader. Basically, he he bets on groups like Enron uh, that they're going to fail. He does a lot of uh, detective work and sees, look, these guys are set for a fall. I'm going to bet against them. And when their share price falls, he makes a lot of money. Well, he's done the same thing on China, and I'm sure he is laughing all the way to the bank at the moment. But uh, let's have a listen to an interview he did on charlierose.com, charlierose.com, about this time last year on the state of the Chinese economy and why he was uh, so sceptical of the the long-run prospects for the nation. Jim Chanus is here. He's president and founder of Kenicos Associates. The multi-billion dollar investment fund specializes in profiting from bets against publicly traded companies poised to decline in value. He gained prominence in 2001 with the lucrative wager on the demise of Enron. Since 2009, his bearish lens have been focused on China. While a credit-fueled housing bubble has yet to occur in Shanghai and Beijing, Janus warned that doing business in those cities is like going to New York on the eve of the financial crisis. I am pleased to have him back at this table. Welcome. Nice to see you again. You were bearish the last time I saw you. You're still bearish? We're still bearish four years later. I think we were here about four years ago. That's about right. Yeah. yeah. And uh, not much has changed except the credit bubble has gotten bigger. Um, everything that we talked about in 2010 is just basically doubled. Uh, whether it's the amount of credit outstanding in the Chinese economy, the amount of vacant real estate. Yeah, but some people argue that the Chinese uh, appreciate the threat of a bubble and that they are doing more in order to address it than other nations have. And because of the nature of their political system, they can do it. Well, those same people didn't see it four years ago, and now they believe that the authorities have it under control. The problem is, is that data, and uh, we take it, of course, with a large grain of Chinese salt, the data just shows that the credit spigot is just completely wide open and that more and more credit is going to support less and less growth. And the Chinese economy, based on basically construction, Charlie, is really manufactured growth. The minute you stick a shovel in the ground and put up a building or a bridge, that counts as GDP. The problem with that model is when you finish building it, you've got to put up another one. It's not based on ongoing consumption. And this reform that the Chinese uh, optimists felt was coming four years ago still is elusive. Uh, and many of those buildings are still vacant. A lot of them. Yeah. And a lot of them will never be economic. And so, therefore, you have gone, seen a, uh, an economy that's grown from, has gone from a GDP growth of, of double digits, 10, 11 percent, mm -hmm. down to 7 plus percent. Right. Um, we, we have to, again, uh, color this with the, the concept that China is the only major industrialized nation that knows its annual GDP on January 1st of that same year. <laughs> because? It is what they say it's going to be. If, yeah. if, if, if they the, make it what they say it's going to be or, 
whatever they say it's going to be is what they're going to report. Well, we, we, we have a cartoon in one of our presentations of, of all of them, seven of them sitting around the, the table. This is a standing committee. And, 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 and saying, okay, the growth is going to be 7.5%. How do we get there? Yeah. Of course, I know some corporations that do that, too. Well, I, I think there's a lot of corporations <laughs> that do that, too. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, clearly, though, um, there's a lot going for that economy. Mm-hmm. They got an emerging middle class. They've got tension, social tensions. Yep. Um, you know, they're making a serious effort to deal with corruption. A serious effort to clearly a serious effort to deal yep. with corruption. Very much. Clearly a serious effort to try to deal with pollution. I mean, it is a priority for them. You know, and the third priority they say is a sustainable economy. Well, again, uh, in I mean, China, these are serious people with serious skills. They absolutely are very serious people, and the technocrats in Beijing are not to be underestimated. Exactly. However, there is a saying in China, uh, the mountains are high and the emperor is far away. And all of the action where the rubber hits the road in China happens at the local level. And that's where the technocrats in Beijing, although they can direct things, there's a little bit too much faith uh, that's put in the central committee and the planning committees because at the local level, the incentives are still to produce numbers, produce growth at any cost. One other point. The anti-corruption drive, uh, which is something we've been focusing on for the last year and a half since Xi Jinping has been in power, is actually much more than that. It now appears to us to be a far more serious effort to cleanse the party. And uh, if you look at the People's Daily uh, uh, overnight announcements, I mean, there's four or five uh, headshots put up on Twitter and on their website of people who have been taken away every night. Mm. I mean, it's almost as if you're seeing a Soviet-style 1930s purge yeah. with social media. Um, people are falling out of buildings. I mean, I'm not exaggerating. And, and, yeah. uh, but I know, I mean, I think we know about all the prominent people that have been. There's a lot of people below that level. Okay, and it's having, below prominent yeah. people that we don't. And it's having an impact on the economy. Because a large number of things like apartment sales, high-end luxury uh, products, uh, were bought with basically you know, dirty money. Yeah. Is there some sense that Xi Jinping is becoming more authoritarian? I think so. I think he's, I think he's uh, very much... Consolidating his own personal power. In his own way, in his own nationality, he is a lot like Putin. In that, that he, although he's a communist and part of the Communist Party, that is a vehicle to an end. He is a nationalist. And I think that two years ago, three years ago, we would have said, well, he will be first among equals. I think it's very fair to say now he's first. And, and that uh, he's going to be much more firm, much more aggressive, and much more muscular in the way he looks at the world. Mm. And, and, and eliminating opponents. Well, I, I think that's, that's happening as well. Okay, but I mean by that not... Doing away with them, but right. in a sense, consolidating power and those exactly. people that might be a challenge to him, exactly, you know, are not as powerful as they were. Exactly. Um, so when you look at the both in terms of of things that they might want um, to do, uh, what is it that the, it's essential for them to do if, in fact, they're able to deal with this possible right. bubble? Well, again, navigating the credit issue will be the the issue and. Reforming the economy so it's less reliant on investment and more reliant on consumption, as in a, a more right, traditional right. developed economy. Which is exactly what they're trying to do. They're trying to do. But since you and I sat down four years ago, investment has increased as a percent of the economy, not decreased. Mm-hmm. So for all the talk and for all the optimism about reform, the results still show that, in fact, it's not happening. 
And and that's the troubling part. Okay, but let me just understand. There's a couple of things here. Number one is is that the dramatic shift they're trying to achieve is going from an export economy to a domestic man economy, right? Yep. And they hope that they'll have a rising middle class. You know, that will enable that. Too. They'll right. demand and they'll manufacture all these things and that'll provide jobs and, and it goes on and on and on. Uh, you're saying what, that you don't think they're able to do that within any reasonable amount of time well, that for, they might yeah. expect to have a deliverance of results. Well, first of all, it's much less of an export economy than most people think. Net exports, exports minus imports, uh, last year was only a couple percent of GDP. Right. So this is down from double digits uh, four years ago, five years ago. So this is still basically a, a bifurcated economy, consumption and investment. Right. And they've got to flip it. They've got to flip basically uh, so that uh, ongoing consumption services, uh, so on and so forth, uh, are, are a recurring form of growth as opposed to more projects. Because ultimately, you end up with enough projects. And that's, that's still the issue that they cannot seem to navigate. Every time the economy slows, and I, I like to joke that China is the only economy where when growth slows from 7.5 to 7.4, all the stops have to come out. Mm-hmm. I mean, what does that tell us? It tells us that, again, they're worried about stall speed. They're worried about hitting the brakes and growth not going from a reality point of view, 7.5% to something much, much lower, even though we will never see that, of course. And I think that's the real challenge of looking at China from the outside, is trying to figure out what's really happening beneath the gloss of the official statistics. They also want to know what their long-term ambitions are. Mm -hmm. And there we have Jim Shanos on the Charlie Rose Show, charlierose.com. Uh, one of America's best uh, interview-type shows. So great to uh, be able to borrow some of that resource here on 3CR's Renegade Economist. So, yeah, interesting to hear some of our general trends we talk about there with uh, vacant housing as a bit of a bellwether. And uh, we've been talking for years about the somewhere between 53 to 65 million empty apartments there that our iron ore has been dug up and shipped off to build to... Uh, continue this global property Ponzi game. And that's what really concerns me is that underneath this uh, uh, credit bubble sits the property game and uh, beyond that, the land game. And yeah, this this article, I'd love you guys to read it. I'm going to put it on the show notes on earthsharing.org.au. But uh, China's economic fundamentals exposed because in the middle of last year, I was uh, also talking here on The Renegade Economist and blogging about the dramatic drop in uh, land sales uh, and the volume of sales. In June 2014, I warned of these looming troubles with reports of land turnover falling 45% year on year in uh, a post called China Watch, Land Turnover Plunge, a predictor of recessionary forces. And it's been hard keeping an eye on Chinese data because uh, not all of it is translated into English. This data is uh, largely collected by real estate uh, bodies rather than official government statistics. So it's hard to know exactly what it means. But uh, in April 2015, um, Shanghai land sales volumes plunged 103.7% in the year. So why are land sales, the turnover of land, a important uh, indicator of looming recession? 
Well, because when uh, turnover plunges, that's a predictor that prices are going to fall soon. They're going, they're sort of uh, land banking pressures. So they will try and hold off uh, the drop in prices for a, a number of years. Um, yeah, but in the end, it catches up with them. And this is all highlighted in Gavin Putland's excellent report. I think from about 2010, he wrote this, um, looking at the post-GFC situation of 36 nations. And uh, he tied this together in a report called From the Subprime to the Terrigenous which uh, you can find on lvrg.org.au. And Gavin demonstrated how land sales turnover acts as this precursor to economic recession, where I think over 80% of those nations had uh, um, a drop, a significant drop in land turnover. And some four quarters later, uh, the country started to dip into recessionary pressures. So uh, this is a hypothesis built out of Fred Harrison's fine work in Ricardo's Law, I think it was. So uh, let's just step through this cycle and how it plays out. So generally, um, you, we would see these sort of trends that land prices reach a new high and that high is set beyond what wage earners can realistically afford. And uh, we have uh, land flippers, property speculators jumping in and buying at prices where they factor in expected future capital gains. Now, that is a definition of a bubble when it's beyond the fundamentals of what wage earners can uh, afford. And if you then cross-reference that with what rents, the rental market at that point in time can actually repay, that's another measure to really decipher whether we're in bubble territory. And China uh, has pushed through that in many fronts. Uh, the average property price there goes for about $100,000, but uh, the the wage earners in uh, uh, central central Beijing are earning around about $10,000 on average. So, uh, you know, that's a 10 times earning ratio, which if you looked at Australian property prices, we're in a similar sort of uh, stratosphere. So uh, let's see what happens in this uh, very risky world we live in. So uh, once uh, these the, these high price plateau is reached, uh, experienced investors realise the economic fundamentals no longer relate to reality and they start to pull back, whether that's a total boycott or just incremental reductions in their purchasing uh, uh, agenda, it does start to add up. Land banking developers then try to manipulate the market, reducing supply in order to choke prices. This plays out over three or four quarters as banks get concerned, warning developers not to drop prices or margin calls will uh, be brought in. So uh, developers then offer free cars, furniture or carpet to entice purchases in order to maintain the inflated land price. So they'd rather give you a free car than drop the land price because if they do that, that affects their whole land banking strategy, their whole leveraging process, and uh, that's not what the banks want to happen. So uh, in time, land bankers have no option but to reduce land prices on the back of low land sales turnover. Banks make their margin calls, calling in the difference between the loans given and the new lower value of land holdings. 
So uh, that's a big point that uh, played out. And we just have to remember what happened in America. It was in the first quarter of 2006 when land prices started to fall. If you read Phil Anderson's excellent The Secret Life of Real Estate and Banking, he goes through those two years and shows just how many small to mid-size credit and banking organizations hit the wall they started to fold over that time as a momentum built until some two and a half years after land prices fell that uh, Lehman Brothers hit the wall and uh, that that great cover plan of uh, subprime mortgages and uh, blaming poor people for borrowing too much uh, got uh, pushed out as the diversion plan away from looking at this old, old story of the good old land game. So uh, as uh, these margin calls are brought in, developer bankruptcies build, and that's exactly what's been happening in China with the Kaiser Group. Kaiser Group Holdings uh, on January 12 defaulted on $23 million interest payment, and uh, in other areas such as Gangzhou, uh, the Gangzhou Long Properties Limited and Gangzhou Bank and Credit Limited went bankrupt, owing more than 300, 320 million, sorry, in debt earlier this year. So uh, I, uh, there's a lot of smaller developers who are also hitting the wall as uh, land prices do suffer, and this turnover game can no longer be be played out. The 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 land banking strangulation of the market uh, basically they've been called on this play and because the land market is such a big component of every nation's economy when those land prices fall the banking system cannot uh, maintain such uh, credit growth and from that the credit offered to the market falls so uh, that's how the script goes and over time uh, with the, uh, the the Shanghai Stock Exchange trading at median 61 times reported earnings compared to uh, what we're talking about here in Australia, uh, you know, around about 16 to 18 times, uh, they were well overpriced. So they were due for some sort of correction. And the other big thing that's happened in China is that they have unhinged from the US dollar. The um, global currency war continues where the new form of protectionism is a a currency devaluation, which uh, is great for foreign investment. They can storm on in and uh, snavel up uh, a nation's resources very cheaply. So that uh, keeps the uh, one percenters uh, very happy, but uh, yeah, it, it seems like uh, the average Chinese worker is going to be feeling the brunt of uh, of the uh, no doubt drop in employment, and from that uh, risk to repaying mortgages at that uh, more local level. So many people say uh, that uh, China has such huge. Um, uh, exchange reserves they have great four trillion dollars in currency reserves but uh, they also have a lot of short-term external debt so uh, that really wipes uh, those those four trillion down to about uh, 2.6 trillion dollars and apparently as a percentage of GDP according to uh, one of the most respected uh, uh, financial journalists out there Ambrose Evans Pritchard brings them down to a level that is comparable to uh, uh, South Africa, the Czech Republic and Turkey. 
So uh, that's based on some IMF uh, findings there. So, uh, you know, people always like to talk up China. So it's going to be very interesting to see how they can pull themselves out of this situation where the uh, government has given already dramatic interest rate reductions and now have reduced the reserve rate requirement for the banking system. So with land prices possibly going to accelerate in their fall now, that may mean that some of their bank banks also need bailouts. So will they start uh, the printing presses in China? Who knows what will happen? But uh, yes, this wild ride of speculative capitalism is set to continue. So, uh, yeah, just in the last few minutes, I must um, get the word out that next Wednesday night, September the 2nd, we have our 124th annual dinner talking about these very issues. We have Miranda Stewart from the ANU. She's uh, been uh, involved uh, at the highest levels in uh, the bureaucracy uh, and academia So we're very lucky to have her speaking on what makes a successful tax state. And my trip through America saw some of the destruction that is playing out with poor um, public finance systems, that uh, preventative measure to uh, the public uh, institutions we all love. Uh, uh, In Detroit, it was just a disaster zone. There was basically uh, two or three houses per block and, uh, you know, the other 17 or 18 were empty or burnt to the ground and, uh, you know, lots of green, green grass growing everywhere. And uh, uh, one of the big land bankers, um, Hans Farms, has uh, uh, a process where they're trying to um, plant 10,000-odd trees through the area and get the government to give them property tax discounts on that. And then in another 15-odd years, when those trees have matured, they'll sell that land and make a mint, no doubt. So uh, there was all sorts of um, news stories flying through of uh, $6 million Japanese uh, purchases of uh, uh, large tracts of land there for sight unseen. Uh, The Chinese, of course, have all sorts of tour buses going through all sorts of uh, uh, buying agents around there. And uh, poor old Detroit, it was on the ropes. A lot of great people there. It was great to see um, some of the music still kicking through. And, of course, uh, plenty of people pushed out of the place I visited before that, which was San Francisco, where no one has a living room. Um, Even uh, multimillionaire developers, uh, software developers can't get houses. Airbnb snowed under. It's... um, It's just a a battle zone to get housing um, in San Francisco. But uh, Detroit's surrounded by monopolists, everyone trying to pry in to um, snavel up this cheap land. They've got Matty Maroon, the uh, monopoly bridge holder. He owns all this real estate, a casino operator. He's on the case. He owns some 45 blocks of um, Detroit. I'm going to talk more about this in the coming weeks. So, uh, Thanks very much for listening to The Renegade Economist. My name's Carl Fitzgerald. Get in touch via Earthsharing on Twitter or renegades at earthsharing.org.au if you've got an email question. All right, the show notes will be up uh, within 24 hours on Earthsharing. So uh, thanks very much uh, for your support. Great to come back and see that the recent 3CR Radiothon raised $247,000. 
Wow, that is amazing. So uh, well done, listeners. Thanks very much for all your support. Hi, I'm Kim Salmon. I'd like to have a quick word about uh, public radio, particularly 3CR. The thing about public radio is that it's more open than the more formatted types of radio to what's going on around it. So when you listen to it, you're more likely to hear a reflection of real life. And 3CR being in the heart of Smith Street, Collingwood, is a particularly good example of what I'm talking about. If you'd like to uh, subscribe... The number is 94198377. You've been listening.